Okay, so we've got our notes synced and the audio is recording. I think we're ready to go. Uh, Josh, are you all right? Your your eyes, they they seem to be bleeding. It's the reading, man, the reading. You made me do the reading. Well, it is conspiracy theory masterpiece theatre. Surely you're used to a little reading by now. A little reading? A little reading? You made me read seven papers. You promised me two, and you made me read seven. Well, I thought it was only two, but then I realised you had to read another paper to understand the correspondence, and then I remembered you, there were replies to those papers which made even more sense of the discussion. I mean, if it helps, it will make reviewing a book a lot easier in a few months' time. My eyes are filled with blood. I see only the world in shades of red. I'll never be able to look at my children again without knowing that all they can see is their red-eyed monster of a father looking back at them. Well... You have turned me into a nightmare! But the thing is... I now see through the world. Where you see empty space, I see the elder monstrosities that lurk in liminal spaces. Above the sky, I can glimpse the strange geometries that fold our reality into that of the third spaces. I have become a conduit for them, and the world will never be the same again. Yes, that's all well and good, but what did you think of the painting? Oh, they were great. Actually, I really liked the way you were just agreeing or disagreeing, um, but in a gentle and genial way, especially like the way you The Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy, brought to you today by Josh Edison and Dr. M. Denton. and welcome to the podcaster's guide to the conspiracy here in Auckland, New Zealand. I am Josh Edison in Zhuhai, China. It's Associate Professor of Philosophy and notorious South Seas pirate, Dr. M. Dentith. Maybe not the one you think. Yes, it's our second episode of the year and, and we're all still here. That's nice. It's not even horrifically muggy here in Auckland, so I'm not not willing death on either myself or all of you as I record this, as I usually am. Spoiler. And since last we spoke, I've had three more COVID tests because we have a few instances of Omicron in the community. And so the provincial government is making sure we have no more instances of Omicron in the community. So it's been testing, testing, testing. All week long. Yes, whereas the messaging here is very much, look, Omicron, it's not here. We're, it's, we're stopping it at the border, but that can't last. It's going to show up eventually. So everybody, please get vaccinated and we're just going to have to see what happens. Yes, and I see, I see the vaccination of children has begun in earnest back home. Yes, yep. Both of my children are now vaccinated. Younger one has had his first shot and then it's a few weeks until he gets a second. And then I'm due for a booster and... I don't know, a month or two. I forget how long you're supposed to wait now. Four months, I believe. Four months. Is it four? Yeah, so I think an another another month or so. I can go get mine. So yes, it's Vaccination City in the Edison household. I mean, that's a very weird metaphor, Vaccination City in a household. I mean, it's uh, all what, vaccination what, all the what time. Are you a shining vaccination mountain a go -go. on a hill or a shining yes. city inside a mountain or a shiny mountain inside a planet? Or a shiny planet inside a solar system, which would, be, which would make you a sun. I mean, this analogy just breaks down the more you think about it. Yes. 
So let's talk about the new paper you have coming out then instead. Yes, so I've got a new paper coming out called Suspicious Conspiracy Theories. It's going to be in the journal Synthase. It's currently in the process of being de-anonymized. So it's gone through the review process. It had a minor revision. It was a very complimentary minor revision as well. The reviewers went, this is a great paper. Here are some small things you might want to add in, which I then did. And yes, very soon it'll be sent back to the publisher and all going well, it's going to be an open access piece. I say all going well because I'm still waiting on final authorization of my research funding to come through, which will then allow me to pay the extraordinarily high open access fee. So to make a paper open access so that anyone can download and read it, it costs somewhere around about 2,800 US dollars, which of course I'm not going to pay out of my own pocket. I'll use my research mm. funds to do that. To do that, I need to get permission from the university to spend those funds, which means I need the funds to be finally authorized to go into my account so I can ask for them to leave the account. And the timing of the paper being accepted turns out to be ever so slightly awkward in that I know my research funding is pre-approved, but it's not approved approved yet. So I need to kind of delay submitting the final de-anonymized version of the paper in order to ensure that when the publisher gets back to me with, so do you want to pay that open access fee? I can go, yes, yes, I can right now, as opposed to uh, maybe in a few weeks time, can we delay things? Publishers are notoriously very fickle about delaying things. Hmm. Well, there you have it. The podcaster's guide to the conspiracy. You come for the conspiracy theory stuff, stay for university bureaucracy. Oh, and, there's so, and the thing is, the further up the ranks you go, the more bureaucracy you have to deal with. Mm, mm, yes, no, I've heard about that. Um, anyway, sticking on the theme of papers and universities and so on, have we got a, have we got a treat for you? As Alex I Jones would know. say, a tranche. A tranche mm. of papers. Yes, so as, as, as implied... Uh, by the intro there we have a, a collection of seven papers representing a sort of a sort of a good-natured conversation between a bunch of philosophers um, full disclosure I got through five and a half of them uh, in full and 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 kind of ran out of time a little bit slightly before the end but the last one is one of yours anyway so I think you can um, you can give us the lowdown on that. Well, but, I, try, uh, given I, that we do, I try to forget what I write whenever possible. Oh, well, there you go. So it'll be fresh and exciting for you. Um, so I think, I think given that we have seven short but not insubstantial papers to get through in one go, maybe we'd better just play that chime and pile straight into them. Indeed. Welcome to Conspiracy Theory Masterpiece Theatre. So, do we have a, do we have sort of an umbrella term for this collection? Is it the? It's, it's not like the dentist papers or something like that. Well, so this would be nice correspondent is going to end up being the basis for the edited collection I made, taking conspiracy theory seriously. In that, the first third of that edited volume is basically a correspondence around my paper when inferring to a conspiracy theory might be the best explanation, which was replied to in the journal The Social Epistemology Review and Reply Collective. So it was re replied to by both Lee Basham and Pat Stokes. I replied to both Lee and Pat. Pat and Lee responded to each other. 
I responded to those responses. And eventually from that, the publisher went, actually, there's probably a book in this. And so that basically taking conspiracy theories seriously exists entirely because of this good-natured discussion here. So we could call this a taking conspiracy theories seriously conversation. Or we could well, not. Do. I mean, really, it's up yeah. to you. Well, exactly. Um, no, so this, as you say, this, these were seven separate uh, papers published in Social, Social Epistemology Review and Reply Collective from 2016 to 2017. Interestingly, I, I, I noticed your first one lists you at University of Auckland, and then by the end you're in, in Bucharest. This was done over that transitional period. It was indeed. In your, in your academic career. Um, so yes, so the papers in order are The Need for Accountable Witnesses, which is a reply to your when inferring to a conspiracy might be the best explanation, uh, which is written by Lee Basham. Then we have Treating Conspiracy Theories Seriously, a reply to Lee from you. Then we have Between Generalism and Particularism about Conspiracy Theory, which is a reply to both Lee and you from now Pat Stokes. Then we have In Defense of Particularism, which is your reply to Pat's reply to you and Lee. Then we have Between Two Generalizations, which is Lee's reply to Pat's reply to Lee and you. Then we have Reluctance and Suspicion, which is Pat's reply to you and Lee's reply to his reply to you and Lee and finally we can round things out with conspiracy theories and their investigators which is of course your reply to Pat's reply to your and Lee's replies to Pat's reply to Lee and you. Sorry I I got very confused here could you please could you explain that again from the top because that got very confusing. I could but I refuse to on the grounds that it's silly. It, it, it makes more sense as we get through. Uh, yeah I suppose at the start it, it is nice to see that level of um uh, 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 camaraderie and general it's all, it's all very polite conversation we've seen some papers in the past where things have got a little heated there's been some emotion on display but this is all very much um, uh, what's the term that gets used later on? Furious agreement so uh, a lot of people who are broadly in agreement with each other on a great many things but just sort of um, suggesting suggesting things they might want to think about um, or at least that's how it seemed to me. I don't know, is is there a sort of coded language in academia where what, what seems to me to be nice and polite is actually the gravest of insults when you sort of say, oh, this is, a nice, this, this is all very good, but have you perhaps considered that? Is that your way of saying, you stupid son of a bitch, what the hell were you thinking? Uh, or, or should I just, should I take the charitable view and assume that all the all the good-natured talk is, is, is as wholesome as it seems. So it kind of depends. So there is a kind of cultural difference between, say, the way that philosophers talk in the US and philosophers talk in Australasia. So from my experience, and some American philosophers will, of course, disagree, but from my experience, question time in American talks is fairly aggressive in that people stake their claims and then they kind of fight over those claims by being brusque and succinct. Whilst in Australasia, we have a much more polite norm of Q&A after a talks. And this polite norm is sometimes a case of people going, well, you know, we're all in it together. We're all on that eternal search for truth. Let's have a nice, polite conversation about these things. Because really, we're not in disagreement, even though 
we could be. One of the worries people have about the American tradition of Q&As after talks is that people artificially set themselves up in opposition to kind of engage in point scoring. And Australasian philosophers, by and large, think that's a relatively stupid thing to do. However, sometimes that politeness norm is in fact disguising the fact that you really, really, really hate the person and the view they're presenting. And you're just required, because of the politeness norm, to phrase that hatred in the most genial way possible. Now, in this particular correspondence, everyone by and large likes the other. So there isn't any of this nastiness going on being disguised by politeness. But it is also interesting that we've got kind of three positions on the particular debate we're going to see. There's, and actually I'm trying to work out the best way to describe this. You might think of two of the interlocutors in this conversation, which is Lee and myself, as being the Locke and Hobbes of the philosophy of conspiracy theories. Yes, I'm a little bit confused, to be honest. Isn't isn't Locke and Hobbes the action movie with um, Dwayne The Rock Johnson and Jason Statham, in which case Pat Stokes is presumably the Idris Elba character? Although I have seen that film. I don't recall so many discussions of um, societal... Uh, 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 discussion around conspiracy theories but that probably happened at the bit when they go back to Samoa where I really I, I zoned out for a little bit until they started punching each other again so um what I'm taking from this is that Pat Stokes is Idris Elba with cybernetic well, see, implants I, in the spine. I would have gone for Pat Stokes being Vin, Vin Diesel but he's not in the 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 oh yes but see I'm thinking, I'm thinking of the metatextual stuff which is I Dwayne see, Rock right. Johnson and Vin Diesel's stupid vendetta against one another. Oh, I see. That does make a little bit more sense, by which I mean none. Um, anyway, yes. And that, and that I think makes that is... you the Michelle Rodriguez of the franchise. I'll take that. I'll take that quite happily. So that's a good a good sort of overview of where, where our, our interlocutors are coming from. Now, with seven papers to get through, we only really have time to devote about five minutes to each one, but that's okay because... In large part, there's a lot of sort of restating of stuff that's come before in a lot of these papers. So also, we can I do want to point out that this is Josh's sweet summer child moment here. And he always thinks we're going to be able to rattle through these papers in conspiracy theory masterpiece theatre. If Josh can actually maintain a five minute threshold per paper, I'll be very impressed. Yeah, well, well, the joke's on you because I've barely read several of them. So. Uh, I think that'll allow me to get through them quite quickly. But um, starting at the start, the need for accountable witnesses. So this is the paper that Lee Basham wrote in response to your 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 larger paper when referring to a conspiracy might be the best explanation. Um, and and he says right you know right at the start he's quite clear that he's he's largely in agreement with you in terms of particularism and in terms of how you define what a conspiracy or a conspiracy theory is. And most of this first paper is him pretty much restating. Um, and advocating for his own views, in particular the stuff that we've seen from me before, the whole public trust approach and saying how that, that, that sort of trusting trusting in the public as the likes of Brian L. Keeley um, and Joe Osinski have, have talked about, uh, he's, he's not in favour of that and goes for a different um, view. Um, 
And at the end of all that, he says, we might conclude this is where the initial phase of the epistemic debate ends and the proper departure for future research on the epistemic problems suffered by steep information hierarchies. One way to recognise these problems is to contrast warranted formation of social beliefs in small, tight-knit societies, where mutual surveillance and mutual knowledge of personal character is high, to social belief formation in civilizations like ours, where epistemic reliance on others far removed and unknown to us is almost complete. This approach explores problems with the reliability of primary epistemic sources in our information hierarchies. So I mean, most of what he's talking about is, is sort of a large, it's kind of a, a wider point about how we should be um, uh, uh, looking at these uh, conspiracy theories from a sort of, fr from a societal context, which has always kind of been Lee's thing. Some people look at the theories themselves, we've seen other people look at conspiracy theorists, and then Lee was always looking about the society in which conspiracy theories occur, but at the end of all of this, he kind of gets to his only real, I wouldn't even call it bone of contention, but he uh, only real bit where he, he parts company with you a little bit, where he's talking about exactly how you should approach um, this this project of particularism. And he talks about your approach uh, as being one of attrition, basically picking away at all the various arguments for generalism until it, it's clear that there is no argument for generalism and particularism is the way. Um Whereas uh, Lee thinks that that as a, that not necessarily instead of that, but as a complement to that, um, we could be looking at these these um, primary primary epistemic uh, sources that he was just talking about. Um, in fact, he says both approaches, the critique of primary sources and attrition, are complementary, and finishes off by saying we also need an open society epistemology of and ethics of discourse, so this network can be fairly rational and actually fearlessly illuminating with the power of applying real accountability, the essence of particularism. Dentith's work is cutting edge. Mic drop, walk nice, away. Yep. That's a, that's a nice way to finish things. Cutting edge. Cutting edge is what you are. Yes, and this, I mean, this, this gets us into what's going to happen towards the end of this tranche of papers, which is exactly how we're going to go about investigating these claims. So as you rightly point out, Lee is very concerned about the kind of societies in which we live. So as we saw in Living with the Conspiracy and Malevolent Global Conspiracy, we have the idea from Lee that we don't really live in an open enough society to be sure that conspiracies aren't happening around us. And so Lee is kind of envisioning a project here where we need to basically tear down our existing structures and rebuild society in such a way that we can basically be sure that if conspiracies occur, they are investigated, and if we have a dismissive attitude towards conspiracy theories, it's because we're going about the investigation of those conspiracies in our society. Now, to a certain extent, I do share Lee's ideal here that it would be great to tear everything down and start again. I mean, I'm concerned about the rampant racism, sexism, and queerphobia that exists in our society. And maybe the only way to fix that is to bomb the West into oblivion and start again from first principles, a position that many people find to be very disquieting. But at the same time, I'm also aware that as an individual philosopher, I virtually have no power whatsoever to restructure society sitting in my office here in Zhuhai. So instead, I take, as he points out, the iterative approach, and I go, well, 
if we just point out that all of these arguments for the prima facie skepticism of conspiracy theory are bad, we can at least get rid of the worry that people are dismissing claims of conspiracy simply because they've been labelled as conspiracy theories. Yeah. And so... Continuing on from here, we get to the second paper. Your, and I'll, and your I'll point first... out, that was exactly five minutes. Well done. Excellent. I, there we we're, go. We're lapping now. Mm. Um, so we, we go, um, come on to treating conspiracy theories seriously, a reply to Basham on Dentith. Um, so one of this the is worst of porn films I've been in. Basham on Dentith. Mm. Actually, it sounds like a little. It sounds like a small town somewhere in uh, in, in the countryside in England. Yes, a lovely holiday the, in Basham, the, Basham on Dentith. Yes. The quaint village of Basham on Dentith, established in 1768 by pirates, Basham on Dentith is known for its three primary exports: falls, radioactive water, and syphilis. Right, come well, that's five minutes for this one, but that's okay. Mm. Um, so a- again, we can skip over a decent chunk of um, of this one because it's uh, a restatement of your approach to conspiracy theories that we should all be familiar with by now, and a restatement of what Lee um, said before you get on to um, your replies to it. Um, and the, the the guts of it to me seem to start where you say. If we accept, and surely we do, is it weird to have me reading your your words back to you? Or, or like you say, you've forgotten reading them, so it's a little bit new and interesting anyway. So there is this kind of weird phenomena where you go back to work that was written five, six, seven years ago, and you end up going, oh, I used to be able to write really, really well, because you just kind of forget these little turns of phrase you use. You know, why have I not used that again? Mm, mm. Oh, well, this will be a nice stroll down memory lane then. Because you say, if we accept, and surely we do, that conspiratorial activity is not exactly rare, why are we so loath to talk about it when it comes to government and corporate activity? The answer is, I think, a combina- combination of the common wisdom, everything thinks this because everyone has been told to think this by people who already thought it in the past, as well as a certain kind of establishmentarian thinking. It's best people think of conspiracy theories derisively because we don't really want people questioning the very underpinnings of our Western democracies. Now, what is interesting about the Sullivan's, Sunstein's, and Vermules of this world, you've referred, obviously, to a um, paper by uh, American Andrew Sullivan, and then, of course, the Sunstein and Vermule paper that we know and love, Um, What's interesting about them is they recognise that conspiratorial activity is perfectly understandable in, and perhaps even necessary to the functioning of, a democracy. Sometimes governments need to keep secret what they're up to now to realise some future benefit. On occasion, businesses need to deny some claim in order to investigate it more fully, and yes, sometimes it is because governments and corporations get up to no good. Yet said theorists would like us to ignore that last possibility, or at the very least to downplay it. And so with all that in mind, you um, talk about uh, the, the, the practicalities of exactly what you are going to get up to around this um, and introduce, I don't know if this was this, this came as a, a sneak preview at the time or something, but um, you talk about your, what at the time, upcoming project um, in Bucharest, The Ethics of Investigation, When Are We Obliged to Take Conspiracy Theories Seriously? Um, and so go through what it is you're going to be talking about there, which is... Um, as you say, speaking speaking in the past, you, um, uh, future tense for what is now past tense because it's already happened. Yes. Anyway, or maybe still ongoing. Time is strange. Mm. 
Ah, is it? Well, I, I mean, know. I mean, I'm still publishing on conspiracy theory, so presumably I'm still in the process of answering some of these questions. So I, yeah, some of them have been answered. Some of them are in the process of being answered. Some of them will be answered, and maybe some of them turn out to be unanswerable. Mm, oh, well, there we go. The passage of time. Don't believe in it. At any rate, you say, we need to ask, when is it rational for citizens to trust officials? What sort of political culture and what kinds of social arrangements would ensure that it is, on the whole, rational for citizens to trust politicians and others acting in a public capacity? <clears throat> when is it rational for journalists and others to take conspiracy theories seriously and even to investigate them? Could it be rational to take a conspiracy theory seriously even when it is not rational to believe it? Um, so those are the, the questions you were, you were announcing yourself as being looking into. Um, and to talk a bit more about uh, the, 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 the project and the risks of asking these questions and being wrong about them and so on and so forth, but finish off by saying in the last paragraph of the paper, my response to Basham then is to accept his challenge to get my hands dirty again by exploring just what it means to explore the problems inherent with investigating conspiracy theories in the kinds of informational hierarchies we have in the West. He kindly calls my previous work cutting edge. I hope to keep that edge keen over the coming year. To say using exploring just what it means to explore the problems. The, yes. I've, I've used explore twice in one sentence here. That's, you have, that's, yes. that's no, poor I, showing. Poor showing. I did pause there slightly because I wasn't sure if I'd misread it, but instead you had miswritten it, so that's okay. I mean, it, I mean, it's not, it's not, mis it's, it's, it's not incorrect. Yeah, it's, it's just, no, it's no. just, I could have used, I could use a different slightly, word. slightly clunky phrasing. Yes. At any rate, so, so that's the two, that, that, that's how things start. Uh, both Lee, Lee um, has, has a little to say about you and you have a little to say in reply and you're both perfectly um, nice and complimentary to one another. But then, then along comes old Pat Stokes. See, and has a the, thing or two to that say. That section took six minutes. Very good. And actually, I, I mean, I uh, should say that, of course, this is, this, is, this is perfectly nice and complimentary and everything as well. But Pat, Pat, Pat decides that um, he'd, he'd like to uh, uh, voice his opinions on the matter. Indeed, as we're about to see, he's going to intrude into a conversation. Although, I mean, mm. intrude sounds as if he's just, he barges in. He was invited no. by the editor to engage in this. Yes. So he talks about, the, you know, the, the exchange up until now, which, uh, um, as he as he called it, has been largely one of furious agreement, and says that this is a good thing. You know, he's he, he's like, yeah, it's, it's very nice to see that it does it doesn't have to be two people at loggerheads sort of tearing strips off each other. It can be people agreeing with one another, but making suggestions about um, ways that they could do things better. Um, <clears throat> but Pat's going to part company um, with the two of you to some extent because he's, um, while, while he says that in, in um, this area of philosophy, People tend to be more particularist than anything, but he has some some worries about um, particularism that he starts to get into here. So he says that um, while lots of philosophers go for a particularist approach, they acknowledge this definition clashes with the ways we generally talk about conspiracy theory. And this is something we've seen. It's David Cody's talked about this a bit as well, hasn't he? It's he has indeed, yeah. Where, where Cody's got a very big say, thing about the way in which 
conspiracy theories and official theories kind of interrelate to one another. So we can't just go with the simple idea that conspiracy theories are theories about conspiracy theories. There is something about the fact that we take conspiracy theories to be in opposition to official theories, mm. which is a view which Curtis Hagen also pursues. Mm. So, yeah, Pat, Pat's very much getting it. Is it okay if I call him Pat? Should I be calling, calling no, him no, Patrick? No, no, no. Pat, Pat's Pat, what he prefers. Pat will be okay. fine. Okay. Yes, yeah, so he's, he's um, to begin with, um, interested in this idea that, okay, it's all very well and good for academics to say this is what we mean by a conspiracy theory, and therefore you can see conspiracy theories aren't necessarily bad, but there is still this colloquial use where people say you use conspiracy theory to mean something which as as we see is not um as we will see is not uh, spectacularly well defined but they 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 mean a thing and it's different from this this more um generalized usage uh, that we've been seeing in the papers here and and maybe we need to account for that um so he says, uh, after talking about this already, he says, we don't typically group officially sanctioned beliefs about Al-Qaeda flying planes into buildings or Russian FSB agents murdering Kremlin opponents with polonium-laced tea with beliefs about the New World Order or the Clinton body count. Yet there's nothing structural that differentiates the first set of beliefs from the second. If there's a formal difference between Putin murdered Alexander Litvinenko and Bill Clinton murdered Vince Foster, it's hard to see what it might be. Appeals to the official status of one story but not the other don't work because an officially sanctioned story in one society might be considered a conspiracy theory in another. Um, and so he goes on to say there are undeniably risks in a naive generalism that reflexively dismisses any explanation in terms of conspiratorial activity, but there's also a corresponding risk of allowing a legitimate target of critique to hide within an innocent larger character, uh, category of conspiracy explanation. And he wants to say that um, when people dismiss something as a conspiracy theory, they are thinking of a recognisable something that people do. There is something people have in mind when they say, when they'll say things like, that's just a conspiracy theory, he's just a conspiracy theorist, what have you. Um, that people do, you know, that the people do have something, have something in mind. Um, and he says, for now, let's simply note that there is a recognisable cultural practice of conspiracy theorising. Conspiracy theory, as the term is popularly understood, has its own stylistic tropes, history and patterns of accusation. Conspiracy theory is, as Joven Byford puts it, a tradition of explanation. That tradition is a recognisable one with a recurring cast of characters, narrative forms and reflex encounter moves. For instance, the tendency to accuse more and more people of involvement in the conspiracy in order to explain disconfirmatory evidence. Disconfirmatory? Disconfirmatory. I don't know. I, I don't like that I, word I, and I won't say it again. Psych, I've heard it both ways. I've heard it both ways. Mm. He says the boundaries of such a tradition or style of explanation are naturally enough fuzzy and ill-defined, but it's clearly a far more concrete phenomenon than an explication of its basic epistemic form can capture. Accordingly, any critique of conspiracy theorizing as a real-world practice needs to resist an artificial simplicity that would strip it of precisely the content upon which we could judge such a practice. So basically, Pat seems to be saying that yes, he's been completely generalist about things um, is is no good, uh, if only because we know conspiracy theories do occur sometimes. That's that's just an indisputable fact. Um, but he worries that if we're just completely particularist about anything, we might be overlooking the fact that there is some some sort of activity that we um, 
possibly are justified in being suspicious uh, suspicious of right from the outset. And uh, you're going to have something to say about that, but we'll wait until your until your next paper um, and reply to this. But Pat uh, finishes things off by he he wants to suggest some sort of a middle ground. And he says, what then might lie between or beyond generalism and particularism? Perhaps something that might be described as defeasible generalism or reluctant particularism. Such an attitude would not begin from the premise that conspiracy theories are always false. As such, it would not foreclose the possibility of ever investigating any conspiracy theory. It would, however, approach such theories with a certain reticence, given the social practice within which those theories are embedded and the moral costs associated with taking part in the conspiracy theory tradition. And this comes up a couple of times, but the word reticent means reluctant to speak specifically, not just a synonym for reluctant, and that gets on my wick sometimes. Completely irrelevant to everything else that's been said here. And what's interesting about Pat's work here is it's very much in the realms of the ethics of belief. So he's worried about mm. the cost of accusing people of being involved in conspiracy theories. So his worry is that... When people talk about conspiracy theories as a recognisable social practice, they're talking about the fact that there are people out there who accuse people of being involved in conspiracies with virtually no evidence whatsoever. And we should frown upon such accusations because essentially you are blaming people for activities on the basis of no evidence, and that is morally wrong. Mm. We'll get into this a little bit later, but it came. I think it first came up in, in um, Lee's first paper, I think. Uh, the case of the firing of James Tracy um, becomes a bit of a... Who uh, we interviewed uh, uh, on this podcast. Indeed. Much to your uh, dismay. You interviewed, I think. Well, I didn't know who he was at the time, I think. I, I, as I recall, it was when you you did the interview and I put in some commentary afterwards. Yes, so this was a so it was yeah. someone I met at Joe Usinski's first conspiracy theory conference. Mm. So yes, I didn't realise how much I disagreed with a lot of what he had to say uh, when I heard what he had to say in that also, particular interview. Also, at the time that that interview occurred, the Sandy Hook stuff was very much about to occur as opposed yes, to had yeah. occurred. So I was yeah, also yeah, so not aware of where of of where James was going to go. Yes, no. If, if you're not aware, uh, James Tracy, um, he 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 was was fired from his position at Florida Atlantic University in my yeah. in in Florida, close to Miami, uh, for harassing the parents of a child who died in the Sandy Hook shooting, sort of d d demanding that they produce. Um, uh, the child's birth certificate and insisting that they're sort of crisis actors and the child never existed and so on and so forth after he um, wrote a few things sort of start, started off in a, in, a, in a very much a just asking questions sort of vein about um, what happened at Sandy Hook but moved fairly quickly into a, it's all a hoax and these people never existed so um, but but at any rate he's first mentioned as um, a conspiracy theorist who got fired for his conspiracy theories, and then there's a bit of back and forth about. Um, I think I think it was in that one. Pat points. So he, he didn't get fired for being a conspiracy theorist, though. He got fired for harassing the victims of a tragedy, which we well, I mean, so he agree. he actually technically got fired for engaging for unauthorized act activities. So he was running a blog called Memory Hole in which on that blog he was engaging in Sandy Hook trutherism, 
and he was doing that as James Tracy Professor at Florida Atlantic University, and the university went, you've actually got no authorization to be presenting this work with your institutional accreditation. So he was actually fired on a procedural ground. Mm. Well, yes, yeah, because he was tenured, wasn't he? So they would need something more. That, um, yeah, they, more, they, more they needed to find something which showed that he was bringing the university in dis, into dis, mm. disrepute, yeah. basically. At any rate, so we move on to in defence of particularism. And also, that, that was ten, that was ten minutes. Yes, well, there was a bit of bit of fluffing around at the beginning, so that's okay. Um, so your reply to Pat's worries about what he talk, uh, thinks of as a sort of naive particularism. Um, so at the start of it, you talk about how theorizing conspiracies is different from making an accusation of conspiracy, which, as you say, is the thing that um, Pat did seem to uh, be concerned about. Um, but you say that I worry that he's conflating two separate issues. Is the social and cultural practice really conspiracy theorizing, though, or is it the hooking of certain views onto conspiracy narratives? And so your your reply to Pat is that basically we're, we're sort of conflating two separate things, um, and uh, that's that 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 could cause problems. Um, you say conspiracy, conspiracy narratives are cases where alleged conspiracies by the usual suspects, women, slaves, Jews, Catholics and the like, are used as convenient scapegoats. These narratives are irrational and that they are rhetorical bad habits. Um, with a, a lovely little Ghostbusters reference there by, by way of example, saying something's wrong in your neighbourhood, who are you going to blame? Feminists. Um, which are, which I... Like normally it would be Jews, I suppose, but feminists is closer to Ghostbusters in terms of the scansion. So I think you made the right call there. Yeah. Um, so it's rhetorical bad habits, which are not epistemically constrained, nor are they deployed on the basis of evidence. Um, you take issue with his reference to, to uh, Joven Byford, who I'm not familiar with, but apparently is very much the generalist. He or, he also seems to be committed to the idea that conspiracy theories only emerged in the French Revolution, which doesn't seem to make any sense whatsoever, given that there are several books on, and this is where I got the term conspiracy narratives from, there are several books on conspiracy narratives in both ancient Greece and ancient Rome, looking at the way mm. in which people blamed the usual suspects to basically avoid having to take responsibility for actions and, and the like. So Byford is both very much a generalist and like many generalists, doesn't seem to know his history particularly well. Hmm. So, yes, you talk about these um, narratives and how, and the difference between conspiracy theorizing and then making accusations based on such theories. Um, and that, you know, you, uh, bringing up Tracy, talk about how the fact that you could. He or indeed he could have and and did for a while theorize about these mass shooting events being false flag events, without actually explicitly accusing people. But then eventually did, and that's when uh, things went quite nasty. Um, so you suggest that that Stokes probably should have focused on these problematic conspiracy narratives, and that by trying to treat conspiracy theories and narratives as sort of one of the uh, one and the same, and specifically referring to both of them as conspiracy theories. Um, that could possibly cause problems. And I think we see such problems show up in, in Lee's reply as well. There seems to be a bit of, um, so, so some of some of that looks to be based on a bit of a, a misunderstanding due to Pat conflating these two different things. 
Um, and you talk about how separating out conspiracy theories and appeals to conspiracy narratives um, st still allows for an evidence-based particularist approach. Because um, as you say, after all, if the evidence, or if, if, if what, some of the evidence, I suppose, is that this looks like a redressed version of a Jewish banking conspiracy narrative, then the appropriate evidential response is to ask, well, hasn't this been debunked? Because if it has, then we'll have evidence to mount against the new version. If it is not, then we need to investigate the claim further. Um, and so you, you go through a bunch of that and um, conclude by saying... That being said, Stokes is right that there's a certain naivete to any particularist response which hand-wavingly says evidence will win out. Human beings, unfortunately, do not weigh up claims dispassionately. Maybe we particularists are too inclined to think rational inquiry will save the day, or perhaps we think of such inquiry taking years or even decades. Maybe some of us just out downplay certain reoffenders by saying no one takes those theories seriously. But no, that's not the fault with particularism. Rather, it's a fault of particular particularists. Some of us have been hasty in our defence of particularism, but our haste is not a mark against the thesis. It's instead a mark against the way in which we have propounded our views. Then we should thank Stokes for reminding us not to repeat the errors of the generalist. And um, yes, I, I, I do remember from the start of of uh, your your original um, when inference to a conspiracy theory might be the best explanation. Uh, it did strike me as a little bit, a little bit sort of generalist in, in the way you talked about what generalists get wrong. Um, so yes, certainly to certainly, uh, it's good to be on Josh, guard we, for things we, like that. We never reviewed that paper though. So have you been reading papers off your own bat? No, I'm pretty sure we did. We did. We did no, do that. It was. It was no, very interesting. No, no. We. I mean, we quite deliberately didn't review when inferring to a conspiracy theory might be the best explanation because it would be in the same respect. It's rather weird you summarizing my views on a podcast. It would be really well, weird to review an entire paper by me in a segment called Conspiracy Theory Masterpiece Theatre. That would be an astounding act of hubris on my part. So I, right, I'm, I'm assuming, sure I I'm assuming I, you, are, you are now reading philosophical literature on conspiracy theories without my input, which is a really good sign. It shows that there is a future for you in this academic lark whatsoever. Well, that's true. I have clear memories of us recording a bonus episode where we talked about the paper and me, um, because the, surely you must remember me recounting that experience of uh, glimpsing the, the, the fabric, to, fabric of reality and, and all of causality and causation um, exploding in front of my face and giving me visions of a weird alternate universe where Brian and I had had uh, reviewed your paper and 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 I why why would I have found that strange an alternative if we'd not talked about it ourselves in this universe I, that I we don't, know and love? I don't, this is completely new to me. I don't think there's any any evidence mm. of this whatsoever. I I have a feeling that you you're not only just reading papers off your own bat, but either you're lying to my face about it, or your sleep issues are causing you to hallucinate podcast episodes we've never recorded. That's one possibility. I I would venture that possibly you are suffering from memory-altering brain worms that have simply destroyed um, your 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 past impressions of that episode that we recorded. And I think of those two explanations, I know which one I prefer. Also, I should point out, se seven and a half minutes for this paper. 
Review. Right. Well, then let's crack on. So we come to between two generalisms. So this is now Lee's response um, to what Pat had said the two of, to the two of you. Um, and so he starts by talking about, he, he summarizes what Pat said and that Pat wants to find, as he puts it, a halfway house between particularism and generalism. Now, um, Lee's response to this is to say, but it's a mistake to think particularism is the opposite of generalism. The opposite might be labelled anti-generalism. Conspiracy theories are prima facie true. Um, so that's that, that's his first thing, to say the two aren't actually opposite ends of the same spectrum. They're, they're kind of different things. Um, and he talks about, again, focusing on society, talks about the social consequences of, of both generalism and particularism. Um, but turning specifically to Pat's paper, he's, first of all, he's not convinced at those um, suggested labels that Pat gave at the end of his, his paper, the, um, the idea of either a defeasible generalism or possibly a reluctant particularism. Um, because as he says, all generalists have an ultimately defeasible caveat because all grudgingly recognise that some conspiracies have proven true or well-warranted. Which is not actually true. I mean, this is a bit weird, but there are some generalists who have gone, oh, all conspiracy theories are false. So there's a paper by Viram Swami et al., which goes, you know, by definition, conspiracy theories are false. And most mm. people's reactions to that have been, but what about the conspiracy theories which turned out to be true? Very few people believe that all conspiracy theories are false and there are no true or warranted conspiracy theories, but it turns out there are some generalists who actually do believe this rather lud lud ludicrous claim nonetheless. I assume that means they get quite sort of no true Scotsman-y then and, and in anything you might say that is a cons uh, that is oh, true. So I, yeah, well, I, that's not I a proper actually remember having a debate... Uh, a debate, a debate, a debate mm -hmm. with Stephen Lewandowski when I was giving a keynote at the, at the University of Padova in pa pa Padua, which is the university, the old university city of Venice. And he said, well, there have been no false flags. And I went, well, what about the false flags which did occur? And he tried to then define away every false flag example I gave as not being a real false flag. So yeah, some people are mm. committed to the no no, uh, you are wrong. I I am right, but not many people. Mm. Um, at any rate, and then Lee also isn't isn't fond of the label reluctant particularism because, as he says, if reluctant particularism is defeasible generalism by another name, conspiracy theories are prima facie false. But if presented with overwhelming evidence in their favour, we will reluctantly concede they're well warranted or true. Then this is merely relabels old style generalism. On the other hand, if reluctant means we will not immediately embrace a theory but seek significant evidence for or against, then this is simply the particularist position. So he thinks that certainly these, the the, the suggested the suggested labels that um, Pat puts forward don't really sound like um, a productive way of looking at things. Lee seems to think Pat is just a, an old-fashioned dyed-in-the-wool generalist, which I think might be taking things a bit far. No, I mean, I, I think Pat is a reluctant particularist. He's, he's willing to accept that we can't just say that conspiracy theories are prima facie false. He's willing to admit that upon investigation, many conspiracy theories turn out to be warranted. He's just really, really concerned that the process of actually investigating conspiracy theories can involve making accusations. And he feels that too many people make those accusations 
at too early a point in the investigation, which makes him reluctant to endorse particularism, even though he realizes that particularism is the sensible position to take. So he has a, a moral qualm about the way that conspiracy theorists go about conspiracy theorizing. But he has no qualms about conspiracy theories being something which can be true on the evidence. Hmm. So he then talks about the public trust approach again, which we'll skip over in the interests of time, um, before moving on to the discussion of that moral aspect that Pat was most interested in when talking about conspiracy theories. Um, so Lee says, Moving from the epistemic to moral, Stokes claims our fellow citizens are immoral to publicly share conspiratorial possibilities. Here, the immoral is a simple, <clears throat> a simple consequentialism. Sharing them without rejection does social harm, so they should not be shared. While he makes no attempt to show they do more harm than good, Stokes seems to assume that this is obvious, which I didn't really think that's what was, Pat was saying. I don't think he was saying it's morally wrong to share conspiratorial possibilities. I think he was just saying that there is a moral weight to yeah. making accusations. Yeah, it and is that the weight isn't necessarily the, there when the you're making... accusations are made at too early a point in the investigation. That's that's the crux of his concern. Mm, and so Lee sort of gives a breakdown of, um, of Pat's position, um, which, again, doesn't really seem quite right, and Pat will say as much in the next paper. But I, I did wonder, reading a lot of this, it, it did seem like... A, a bit of a misunderstanding and it did seem like exactly the sort of thing you were worried about in your response in the previous paper that by conflating conspiracy theories and this idea of conspiracy narratives there was a little bit of talking past each other and and lee was possibly um thinking that pat was saying things about conspiracy theories specifically when actually he was talking about these narratives and so on. it did seem like things were a little bit a little bit mixed up um so there's talk of um, uh, all sorts of stuff. The one th one one thread which I haven't um, gone into is uh, conspiracy theories around AIDS denialism in South Africa, but they talk about that a little bit. Um, Lee makes a uh, a case for generalism being actually immoral um, because it I think because it can lead to um, all sorts of uh, the, the the Gulf of Tonkin leading to the Vietnam War and um, uh, things like that. He says the tradition of generalism of whatever form or guise reopens the path to moral disaster, as it has been, as it will be. He's not. He's quite 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 clear in the idea that no generalism is actually morally bad, not just epistemically bad. Um, so he, he has a, a fairly, a fairly um, detailed conclusion, which itself concludes with the paragraph, Generalism serves to perpetuate, not confront, the real vulnerabilities in our information hierarchy. We should welcome its fading. A 21st century epistemic honesty beckons. Between the extremes of generalism and anti-generalism, the real halfway house is particularism. So he's, he's, in no uncertain terms, arguing that particularism is, is right in several senses of the word and is, is the most reasonable um, position on the spectrum which supposedly Pat was looking for in the first place. He also, and I mean, this is an ongoing thing, he also does believe that generalism is on the way out and particularism is now ascendant. And I have to say, as someone who's been doing a lot of paper reviews for journals, and is also helping organize a conference on conspiracy theories happening next month. 
generalism is not on the way out. It's still very much the dominant discourse in the discussion of conspiracy theory. Lee is optimistic in... that it's about to fade, and actually has been optimistic about its fading since the middle part of the last decade. But it's still with us, and I think it's going to be with us for a while. Are you talking about in philosophy specifically, or just in academia in general? Both. Both. There's mm. a there's still a, plenty of generalist philosophers. Well, no, there's there's been a resurgence in gen, in generalist defenses in the last year or so. So it's quite quite interesting. There's a vanguard action going on right now, and I'm right in the middle of it. If that works Excellent. as a military metaphor, I don't know. Also, It'll do. nine minutes. Nine minutes, right. Well, so fortunately for us, we're now up to paper six, which I only kind of got about halfway through, to be honest. Uh, but I think I got the gist of it. Um, so this is now Reluctance and Suspicion, which is, is Pat's response uh, to what both you and Lee had to say. Um, so he starts, he starts by saying, a central part of my argument in his previous paper is that there is a gap between how epistemologists use the term conspiracy theory and how the term is popularly used. My concern is that by defining conspiracy theory so broadly, epistemologists end up losing sight of the recognisable cultural practice of conspiracy theorising. It's well established by this point in the debate that there's no prima facie reason to reject conspiracy theories on the basis of their formal explanatory structure alone, but that level of abstraction is not, so to speak, where we live, and nor is it the level on which social critiques of conspiracy theory operate. Um, so there's a bunch of things going on there. I mean, yes, I don't see how you could call that a, a kind of generalism if he's if he's saying explicitly there is no prima facie reason to reject conspiracy theories. Um, but he does seem to be quite interested in, in looking at the social level in the same way that Lee did. And in response to your points about this distinction between conspiracy theory and conspiracy narrative, he doesn't seem so sure that you can make make that clear of a distinction. He thinks there's too much, or at least there there is interplay between the two, um, as he says, for instance, it's remarkable how strongly the same tropes recur in otherwise disconnected conspiracy theories, for instance, the near ubiquity of false flag explanations. Uh, by ubiquity, I think, I think as he goes on to say, he's, he's talking about how, how they seem to be ubiquitous, specifically in the case of mass shootings. Whenever one shows up, it seems you'll get someone claim, instantly claiming it was a false flag. Um, and so this this is a conspiracy narrative. So I don't know what you'd say about that, really. It, it is certainly seemed to be the case that there are these templates, almost, for conspiracy theories that um, are just often, there ready and waiting for when people want to use them. But... Often the templates are originating from the same proponent. So you'll get your mm. Alex Jones, who is claiming it's a false flag, and then that then flows through the community. Because I think one of the worries here is that Pat is thinking, oh, these things kind of self-germinate and appear spontaneously after every result, as opposed to if you actually tell the causal story of where is this false flag story coming from? It turns out to usually be the usual suspects, which actually does get us into a really interesting discussion about the role of particular, I can't remember who came up with the term, conspiratorial entrepreneurs, the people who who come up with the kind of the grift of conspiracy theories they're using to sell their products or to establish their brand. And so it mm. might be the case that these narratives are coming from them, at which point it's only ubiquitous because these people are being listened to. 
as opposed to mm. conspiracy theories germinating in this way. And I suppose you could say also that these false flag th- theories are, th- they're all kind of part of the same theory anyway. I mean, the people, the, the, the real conspiracy theory is that the government wants to take our guns away. And so they've been organizing all of these different events um, and as, as a pretext for doing that. So any particular event that shows up and immediately gets the false flag template applied to it isn't them saying, here's a brand new conspiracy theory, it's just here's the latest example mm. of this yeah. conspiracy theory That's that I believe all along. Anyway. think about it. Mm. Incidentally, I was going to bring this up at one point, have you heard of the Pizzagate Massacre? No. What is the Pizzagate Massacre? The Pizzagate Massacre is a, a, a low-budget... Um, uh, pseudo documentary? No, not really. It's it's basically a, a sort of a thrillery, crimey story. I heard about it because our mutual friend Richard had heard about it from a uh, the um, uh, gamefully unemployed podcast. Who watch? I haven't actually listened to the episode talking about it, but we watched it the other day, and it's it's basically. Um, a story which is kind of presented as an after-the-fact sort of documentary um, about a person who believes in a Pizzagate-style conspiracy. They sort of there's a there's this woman who is essentially a female Alex Jones, and a guy who believes in the sorts of things she says about lizard people running child slavery rings out of pizza parlors and he belongs to a, a militia and then him and another reporter who believes in this stuff go out and then things go a bit wonky and there's a bunch of shooting and so on and it's um it's sort of it's it's a, a bit of a black comedy like things do get quite silly in places but at the same time it's it is quite disturbing especially because it is quite a plausible sort of look at how that kind of thing could happen um, and it's also just a good example of a um, a film doing doing well with very little in the way of resources. So mm, yes, one I to one to look at. I think as people have said, unf- they've they've made a bit of a slip up in the way, or or at least someone has made a bit of a slip up in the way it's been advertised because it's sort of it's made to look like you know, the Pizzagate massacre. It sort of it kind of presents itself as just some sort of one another one of those grindhouse sort of faux 80s exploitation films or something when it actually isn't that at all but anyway it just reminded me of this sort of stuff as we were talking about it now back to the paper um so there's a bit of discussion around what pat said you said about stuff and he seemed to be saying he he seemed to get the impression that you were sort of saying that there's there's conspiracy theory and there's conspiracy narrative and never the twain shall meet um which I don't think you said. I mean, you you talked about how the fact that you can appeal to the, or the, the this this is this is part of a narrative that we recognise and have been debunked before, and that counts as evidence against the conspiracy theory that you're investigating. Um. So, and I think in the next paper you will actually say something along those lines. Um, Pat again is interested in the ethics of it all, um, and when you talk about. When people talk about that, that certain conspiracies or conspiracy theories should be investigated, he wants to know where that should come from um, and talks about the moral aspect of things um, and then talks about uh, Lee's characterization and basically says, yes, I don't think that was a fair characterization, especially your your five point or I think five points with a hidden sixth point um, summation of his arguments. 
specifically around AIDS denialism he didn't think were a proper one. And this is the point at which I kind of ran out of time and started skipping through things very quickly. He talks about the Tracy affair again um, and goes through a bunch of other things, but finishes off by saying... Uh, having gone through um, uh, engaging with the Basham's uh, sort of public trust idea, social ideas of conspiracy and what have you. He says, The picture of foundational trust sits awkwardly, to say the least, with the standing vigilance required to maintain a democratic polity. There are always good reasons to be suspicious of power of all forms, both overt and covert, explicit and intrinsic. The work of identifying and uncovering power relations is indispensable, and it seems to involve a relentless and remorseless hermeneutics of suspicion. That tension between foundational trust and vigilance is a real and seemingly permanent feature of political and social life. What I've called reluctance here is an expression of that tension, an expression of that tension, and awareness of being caught between the duty to view others as good faith interlocutors and the duty to uncover wrongdoing. The sort of generalised eager suspicion involved in entertaining and advancing conspiracy theories abandons that reluctance and thereby misses that central dimension of human sociality. In a world full of untrustworthy people, the demand of trust remains. Um, yes, I mean, a lot of that seemed to be um, Pat sort of restating his position and, and arguing against the characterization of his position that um, Lee in particular had put forward. So, again, you know, I think it's clear he's not not um, advocating for a real sort of a generalism. Yes, but, once again, um, it is a reluctant particularism. I think Pat's mistake was to give his position two names, defeasible generalism or reluctant particularism. Because I think Lee is very much fixated on the defeasible generalism label, whilst really what Pat is describing is reluctant particularism. He's not being a generalist who's saying, oh, there can be exceptions to the claim that conspiracy theories are always false. He's going, look, conspiracy theories can and often are warranted I'm just reluctant to engage in the social practice of conspiracy theorizing because there are moral quagmires that we encounter when we engage in such a social practice. Hmm. Um, so, moving rapidly on to the final Nine paper half in minutes. the series. Conspiracy theories that into you the only half read. Mm. I mean, admittedly, you also did describe a film halfway through. I did, yes, and, and did skip over quite a lot of material, I have to say. Uh, but so we come to the last one, conspiracy theories and their investigators, and you've got the S in investigators in brackets because the central point is whether, is, is whether we're talking about a single investigator or a bunch of investigators. Um, uh, so you say at the start that you're, you're um, only going to respond to the bits of Pat's paper that specifically concerned your own arguments. Um, Lee can, Lee can look after himself. Uh, you say, I want to focus on what I think Stokes gets right about his reply to... Oh, sorry, <clears throat> let me start again and emphasise the right things in the right time. I want to focus on what I think Stokes gets right about his reply to me, the worry about how we deal with conspiracy theories in public discourse, and what he th I think he gets wrong, how I think an investigation into conspiracy theories would work. Um, so sort of addressing that bit I mentioned before where... where um, Pat seemed to think you were saying that, that conspiracy theorizing and, and uh, um, using conspiracy narratives were two completely separate things came in part where you talk about this, this imaginary conspiracy theory investigator who does nothing but theorize all the time but sort of sends other people out to investigate narratives or what have you and 
um, you've sort of replied to that as, as, as sort of, yep, my bad. Um, I, I, I was wrong to talk about, talk, talk about, talk, talk in terms of a single investigator doing these things and get on to the idea that the way we should really be investigating conspiracy theories is with a, a community of inquiry. I see, did this John come Dewey. out of. Good old John mm, is this something that had come, I mean, because you're writing from Bucharest at this time, is this something that had come out of the project or is that just sort of where you're thinking had had moved to at that time it was really more of how i was contemplating how the moscow trials had been investigated by john dewey and his commission because dewey formed a commission of admittedly like-minded individuals to investigate the official theory of the moscow trials that they were free and fair and discovered upon investigation that actually they were a tissue of lies and dewey had also written on the notion of the community inquiry within the classroom. So this actually links back to the period of time I was doing teacher training and the idea that one way to engage in good pedagogy is to get people to realise that actually we aren't individual learners or rational agents. We exist within communities and we rely upon community resources, so we should engage in problem-solving as communities, communities of inquiring minds. And so I went, well, Dewey did something similar with the Moscow trials. So let's actually, let's pass this out properly and talk about how a communal investigation into conspiracy theories would work. And so I basically argue in this paper, Conspiracy Theories and Their Investigators, that we shouldn't be thinking about lone investigators, the kind of person sitting in their armchair investigating things and writing books. We should be thinking about people using the epistemic resources of their society to engage in these investigations. Now, I, I, this is one of these things where I kind of conflate what I wrote here with the equivalent chapter in the book Taking Conspiracy Theories Seriously, where I expand upon this idea again. But my notion is that when we're talking about these communities of inquiry, we need to be getting as many people involved as possible. And that means that we need to involve people who are skeptics of conspiracy theories, people who are proponents of conspiracy theories, and people who are basically agnostic about conspiracy theories. Because we want to have a kind of community decision that reflects everyone in a society so that when you get a decision from the community as to whether a conspiracy theory is warranted or unwarranted, it's going to be able to appeal not just to like-minded people, but presumably people across the aisle as well. Mm. And so you spend a fair bit of time talking about exactly what these conspiracy, uh, what these um, communities of inquiries might look to, uh, look like. Um, first, basically apologising for talking about a single investigator and giving Pat the wrong idea. And also, uh, for your use in the earlier paper, you talked about um, uh, dispassionate investigators. Uh, which in this one you you say was possibly not the best choice of words because again it gave Pat the wrong idea about what you were saying. Um, uh, here you say what you were trying to get across with the label dispassionate is that an investigator can be informed by cultural mores etc. But that does not necessarily mean that she is immediately or necessarily subject to them. Which is to say that members of the community of inquiry surely know about will surely know about certain conspiracy narratives or the social practices associated with some cases of conspiracy theorizing, without necessarily having to in any way endorse or engage with them. Um, 
and and basically you take it from there. So again, this this is where I started skipping things, uh, skipping through things uh, very quickly. But basically, the whole rest of it seemed to be you setting out how a, a community of inquiry into conspiracy theories might work and the things you might want to think about and the obstacles you might face. Um, concluding this is no different to how we debate the issues in philosophy or physics or sociology and so it should be the same when it comes to these things called conspiracy theories that is if our investigative communities of inquiry are properly constituted but that is a discussion for another time and indeed it will be a discussion and, for and another really. time because mm. there's a book that comes out of the uh, also six minutes yes. so i should point Ooh. out that it took seven papers took 53 minutes 34 seconds point Five, six nanoseconds. Well, that's not bad, but that's certainly more than enough. I think, oh, unless in my in my record skipping over your last paper, did I miss any salient points? You think? No, in part in? because we will be coming back to this when we start going right. through the book, taking conspiracy theories seriously. There's a much full, much fuller, and therefore more fulsome discussion about the community of inquiry approach in the chapter, the final chapter of that book. Hmm. Right. Well, there you have it. Uh, if, if, for the, for you fans of conspiracy theory masterpiece theatre, this must have been your dream come true. Seven papers, all papers, all the time. Can you even stand it? I know I can't. Um, and I think that's uh, I, I, I think that better be um, all we have to say for you this week. Unless, of course, you're a patron, because there's a patron yes. bonus episode coming up. We'll be talking about a potential false flag in Barcelona. A potential false flag in the Ukraine, the arrest of a bishop in Aotearoa, New Zealand, how people are trying to uh, trying to stop childhood vaccinations, which are not mandatory in our home country, and a few updates on some classic characters from bonus episodes. We'll be talking about what's happened to Novak Djokovic. We'll be talking about what's happened to Jordan Peterson. We'll be talking about what's been happening with Donald Trump, and we'll also be having an update on whether David Icke has COVID-19 or not. Uh, and the answer to that is actually no. Oh. Well, well, good job. Now they don't have to listen. I, I, I'm fairly certain. Or every single one of our patrons is glued to our podcast specifically for the David Icke content, and now you've gone and given it away for free. What have you done? I am a monster. Well, on that we can agree. So, um, with 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 those words ringing in our ears, I think the only responsible thing for me to do at this point would be simply say goodbye. And I'll say, I'm a monster, and I like it. The podcaster's guide to the conspiracy is Josh Addison and me, Dr. M. R. X. Dentith. You can contact us at podcastconspiracy at gmail.com and please do consider supporting the podcast via our Patreon. And remember, remember, oh December, what a night.